This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of a Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Blair White. Blair White is a male-to-female transsexual, transitioned in 2015, very active on YouTube and other social media, and very much in the public eye. In this conversation, we speak about the realities of transition, the growing number of detransitioners and why that's alarming, and the politicization of gender and sexuality in contemporary discourse. Fun and fascinating conversation. Links to Blair's work are found in the description. Without further ado, here is Blair White. I saw you in the Tom McDonald video. Yeah. Yeah, that was so fun. That was so fun. Um, so Tom McDonald is kind of like an anti-woke rapper. I don't know if you could describe him as conservative, or, but he's at the very least anti-woke. And um, he makes just like killer songs that are just getting tens of millions of views. And um, he reached out and wanted me to be in the music video. And I have never done a rap video. <laughs> I don't think people really expect Blair White to show up in a rap video, but I did. And it was amazing. And the videos like it almost 8 million views or something like that. So it's easily the most viewed project I've ever been a part of, which is cool to, you know, having been on YouTube and and on the internet for years now doing what I do, it's cool to like at this point still be working on projects that are um, exceeding anything I've done in the past. So it was cool. Huh. What do you think about the woke, anti-woke discourse? Is that interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I find it far more interesting than conservative versus liberal, to be honest. Um, I think that there are a lot of people sort of waking up to the fact that wokeness and these ideologies that are similar are really harmful. And it doesn't take being a conservative to recognize it. There are people from all over the political spectrum, apolitical people um, that are sort of latching onto it. And I think it's great. Yeah. And I think that also, um, in particular, Tom McDonald's presence in it. I think art is so important. I think it's a language that people um, that lean right or that are right wing um, or conservative, they don't know really how to speak that language. There's a severe lack of like pop culture relevance and art and music um, in the right. And I think that they've sort of just rejected it entirely because they're not included rather than making their own. Um And so I think people like Tom are really important. And um, I think that places like the Daily Wire that are working on making movies that are apolitical, I think that's an important move. Um, Because interestingly, being apolitical is being anti-woke, right? Because being woke is being hyper-political, hyper-vigilant, far left. And so it doesn't take being a conservative to realize that it's toxic. It just takes being a normal person who isn't consumed by any particular ideology. Mm -hmm. I've been uh, wondering about that because 
most of our media is produced from, I guess, the liberal side, if you want to try to split it up into left and right. But most of it is liberal. And I think there's more playfulness or people who are playful kind of generally tend toward thinking in that general way. And people who are conservative, I'm talking in stereotypes, but it seems like where's the playfulness and conservatism? And then within so-called the playful creative media sphere, wokeness is profoundly unplayful. It's yeah. it, it stops creativity uh, in a very odd way by demanding, I guess, moralism of some sort. Yeah, I mean, it sucks the fun out of everything and it makes it hard to consume media without feeling like you're having something shoved down your throat. And some people are into that, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, most of the time. Uh, yeah, it, it makes it hard to listen to music. It makes it hard to watch movies. You really have to suspend your knowledge of how the people involved in these projects feel about things and suspend your suspicion that what you're watching has some sort of underlying message. Because even when it's not super overt, you kind of just know it's there. Um, and, and, and it sucks because I remember a time, you know, I'm not super old, but I am old enough to remember a time where it wasn't like that, where we lived in America, where you could have different perspectives and where it was actually um, sort of an unspoken rule that you don't inject politics into media. And whenever people did it, most people rejected it. Um, Now it seems like you can't really watch a television show at all without, you know, having some sort of agenda shoved in. So again, um, it's not about even being conservative. It's about just being apolitical and wanting to kind of go back to everyone just being more chill. (laughs) Well, this is an interesting line of query because the media that you produce, would you call it political in nature? It tends to seem to be kind of political. Yeah. I I mean, I focus more on social issues, um, Hmm. which are inherently political, I guess. Um, And I, but I like to diversify the themes in my videos. So I'll make videos that are completely apolitical that are just, you know, about my life and my story, um, vloggy type videos, which I think helps the audience connect with me as a person rather than, you know, just seeing me as some sort of talking head, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I think that's the difference between a lot of political commentators who don't really have, um, much vulnerability in their content or the things that they do. Um, not that i don't think there's a place for that. Like there's a place for the Ben Shapiro's to just be, you know, very, very objective, never injecting emotion, never injecting personal life. But you know, that's just not me. I like to share my life and I think people value that, that watch me. Um, I like injecting humor. I like injecting comedy. I like injecting the sassiness that I'm kind of known for. Um, yeah, I'm just never the person that's just going to spout off political talking points and be planned about it. I'm just, I'm wondering to what degree, this is a very big question. It's like a sociological question, but to what degree our viewing habits have been shaped by social media and have kind of expected all of us to be commenters or yeah. I wonder if, if uh, it's not just wokeness that's doing that, but anti-wokeness too. If you look at um, the kind of post Gamergate, the talking head thing, everybody started to have an opinion about media and then media started to be uh, criticized as having a political agenda. So I think everybody kind of got caught up. I yeah. Think maybe everybody got kind of caught up in that. And uh, I wonder uh, how to dispel that. But I do think that art is uh, art is key. Humor is key. I don't know how yeah. to how to make that leap, though. I think part of it is um, 
there's a severe shortage of people who are willing to say the words, I don't know. Hmm. There's a severe shortage of people who are like willing to stay out of a debate or a conversation because they don't know enough about it. So for me, for instance, you know, if there was discourse happening about, you know, airplanes and repairing airplanes and flight and being a pilot, I wouldn't just inject myself because I don't know anything about that. That's a world completely foreign to me. But again, the pressure, like you said, the pressure to comment on everything you come across, I do find that most people fall into that. But the unfortunate part is most people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, So for instance, um, I have a Jewish friend who's very much involved in the discourse with the Israeli conflict and with Palestine. And um, he asked me, he's like, Blair, you know, you haven't said much about that online. And I'm like, that's because I don't know a lot about it. I mean, I, I wish I did. I would like to, you know, almost pretend that I do and have something to say because it'd be an easy way to get a lot of likes from either side. But mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it and I don't want to cause more hurt or pain on a topic that I'm simply not educated about. And I do wish more people um, took that position towards things. Trans discourse is a huge one that I just see so many people who have no idea what they're talking about injecting themselves. And I'm not saying that if you're not trans, you can't talk about it. Obviously, I don't believe that. Um, It's just that you have to be at the very least educated on, you know, trans sports is a huge topic right now people are talking about. There's the first um, Olympic trans athlete, uh, weightlifter, powerlifter. Lauren something. Yeah. And you look up this person's name and on Twitter and all the tweets are from people that you can tell just have no knowledge of of the effect on of, of HRT on the body that have no, just nothing. They just want to appear virtuous. And so that's frustrating to me because I wish hmm. people who didn't know about it just would educate themselves or not talk about it. What, what do you think about uh, the trans sport issue? I think that it is not the black and white issue that most people on both sides find it to be. I I heavily lean toward the exclusion of trans women athletes and women's sports. Um, I think especially when you're talking adults, more often than not, you're seeing trans athletes that come in who transitioned very late in life or not at all medically. Um, And because there is what you're supposed to believe, which is that trans women are women with absolutely no you know, distinctive qualities between the two, you're supposed to believe that it's completely fine. You're supposed to ignore the fact that these athletes are absolutely crushing their female competition. And sometimes literally, sometimes literally in the terms of, um, you know, the woman's skull that Fallon Fox crushed. Um, she's a MMA fighter, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, It's interesting because while HRT is incredibly powerful and changes your body a lot, I can attest to that personally. My body is almost nothing like it was before I started. Um, You don't erase all the male qualities that do create an advantage. And you can't – the thing that people need to understand about testosterone blockers and estrogen therapy when you're a male-to-female transsexual is that it does not erase male puberty. It simply – prevents further male puberty if you take it during the time of puberty. Um, So if you have undergone male puberty for seven years, eight years, and you go on HRT, you'll prevent the next few years of it and you'll, but you're not going to reverse what's already been done. And 
what's frustrating is watching people suspend very basic knowledge about males and females, right? You'll see just Mm -hmm. these amazing pictures of like the trans athlete. Um, I've seen one where like the trans athlete is running like a track or something. And there's the women behind her just like hyperventilating, can't keep up, no chance of winning. And you have this just brooding trans male to female athlete, like untucked, like bulging muscle. It's like people can't, I don't know how people can look at that and be like, oh yeah, that's fair. That's normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not all like that, right? Like there are trans people, even though I don't particularly agree with underage people transitioning, there are people that do it. And there are people that develop almost entirely female because they catch it before puberty. And I don't have as much of a problem with that. But these people that transition in adulthood or later or don't transition at all, it's like, mm-hmm. come on, come on. When did you start uh, learning about detransition or detransitioners? And I... I never really knew it was a thing before I started YouTube. Um, and all of a sudden I'm having people reach out to me, you know, 16 year olds, 17 year olds who are telling me in emails, just these long emotional stories about what they went through and how they feel that they've ruined their life. And it was shocking to me because prior to me having this, you know, privilege of having people all over the globe having access to me through my email and my social media and my comment sections, you know, the only narrative I had of trans people was that it was always a success, you know, and it was a success for me, transition and that being a success. Um, transition for me was a success. Transition for most people I knew was a success. And so I thought that was just what it was. And I chalked up those rare instances of people I knew in real life who detransitioned as like, uh, it was a fluke, it was a one-off. And then I started having these young people reach out to me from all over the globe, these stories that I just didn't feel right ignoring. Um, and so I started highlighting them on my channel. I started interviewing them. Um, if I felt like they were emotionally stable enough to be exposed to, you know, a lot of people on my channel, because Mm. a lot of the people that go through that are in a very emotionally fragile place. Um, and so from then more people reached out and then all of a sudden I'm noticing this trend online where there are videos appearing weekly that are getting hundreds of thousands of views from young people saying, I fell into this due to peer pressure, due to an ideology online that told me that all my problems would be fixed if I just was the opposite gender. And it was super concerning to me and it still is. Um, Mm. And so I'm glad that slowly it seems like these people are getting more of a voice, but it's not without extreme pushback. I mean, the activists get so angry when these stories are highlighted, which is why I want to highlight them more um (laughs) because i just i honestly love pissing those people off but um there are there was a 60 minutes episode recently that featured several detransitioners and the pushback from mainstream trans activists such as laverne cox trace strongio i can never pronounce his last name strongio strangio um and glad and big Mm -hmm. you know corporations and organizations that have a stake in this which is so disgusting, you know, um, there has to be a place for these people to tell their stories as well. And if 60 minutes, 60 minutes will probably never highlight it again. The backlash they got, they probably never want to feel that again, but, um, I'm used to it. So I'll just continue highlighting them. What makes a, what are the qualities that you think you possess that allowed, uh, a, a successful transition? Qualities in what terms? Do you mean physical? Do you mean emotional? Uh, I guess quality of character and maybe uh, 
managing your state of mind to really uh, know that this was for you or this was you? Okay. Uh, I knew that it was for me because the emotions and effects of gender dysphoria were persistent, ever present and make up my earliest memories in life. We're talking kindergarten, preschool, not even kindergarten, preschool. Um, and they never went away, uh, no matter how much I tried to fight them. And I started, it was interesting. Once I got a little older, I started going into public spaces. This is before my transition. Um, so I was like 18 or 19. I started going into public spaces and I would be looking completely male um, because I had not transitioned. And clerks in stores would be gendering me female. They'd say, hi, ma'am. Maybe because I'm short, maybe because of my voice, maybe because of my mannerisms. And so I was, but it felt normal and it felt, even though it wasn't normal, you know, I was going by a male name, I had not transitioned, but having people call me she and her without them thinking about it suddenly felt normal and I felt a sense of comfort. So I thought, okay, let me go further with this and see if maybe I'm meant to live my life in this way. Um, and I was, and it's only benefited my life in every way. Um, whereas I see the opposite in these stories of detransitioners. I see that even when they transition, it doesn't really benefit their life. It, it seems as if they got even stronger insecurities. It seems as if their anxiety increased. Um, and so I think that was really it, that with every slow step I took toward living the life I live now, it only improved my life. Whereas for these people, it seems to only, you know, compound their problems um, and so I think that's the difference. It's that it has to, it, transition is not about, you know, fixing your soul or, you know, being part of a group or, you know, being part of an ideology. It's just about living your life in a way that makes you comfortable and enables you to be successful. The success I have now, the happiness I have now, the life I have now was contingent upon me making that leap and fixing the things that were hurting me. Whereas these people that detransition and, and even some of these trans activists that are just insane, it seems as if they're just so full of pain and they're so full of mm -hmm. anger towards the world. And I just can't relate to that because I'm very happy. <laughs> when you said that your first earliest memories or your gender dysphoria, you can trace it all the way back to preschool. I, I, I want to ask this question because there's like footage from at least one documentary uh, about this little boy who wanted to be a girl and, uh, you know, like he wants to wear dresses. And there's a lot of transing of children because parents are yeah. wanting to jump on that. So how how do you see that being misdiagnosed or mistreated, like treating children? Uh, well, I, unfortunately, um, I've seen documentaries like that as well. And I've covered a lot of those cases where there are young children who are expressing gender nonconformity, which is different than being trans. And hmm. their parents just have this, especially white liberal mothers, especially them develop this just fixation on it and it becomes part of their identity more so than the child's identity, right? It becomes the mother's fight, you know, having this transgender child. Um, it's probably the most special thing that's ever happened to this mother in her life. Probably the most unique and interesting thing is their child wanting to, you know, play in dresses or, or if it's a girl, play with boys' toys and whatever. Um, and what I've noticed, I watched a documentary called Transhood, that came out, um, 
at the end of last year, I think, or earlier this year. And um, there was a child like that who at a young age was playing with dresses and girls' clothes and the color pink and all of that. And the mother took it as, oh, this is my transgender child. And for years was having the child go by a female name, go to school, introduce as a girl. And then the child hits puberty and says, this isn't me. And the mother was upset. The mother was distraught that her son was actually her son and not a trans daughter. And I think that really spoke volumes to me that it is so important that you cannot, for these mothers, like, you need to just chill and you need to, if your child really is transgender and is going to end up living this life as an adult, it's, it's going to happen with or without your promotion or your rejection. Because the difference between me and a lot of these kids now is my parents fully rejected me being feminine. They did not understand it. They tried everything in their power to make me manly, masculine, or boy-like. They tried put me, putting me in sports. They tried, um, you know, everything they could. And I still ended up this way. Hmm. So, you know, then you have these kids who are almost having it encouraged by their parents. And I think the only rational, sane way for a parent to react to it is to let their child be themselves. Don't encourage or discourage anything. Just let your child be your child. Do not rush to put them on medications. Because at the end of the day, what people seem to forget is that transitioning when it's male to female it castrates you chemically. You cannot have children. And the fact that you people are allowing 13, 12, 14 year olds to decide if they want to have kids in the future is just insane to me. It's so insane. Sorry, you filled my brain with a lot of thoughts. Sorry, I went off on a lot of those. I, I have very <laughs> strong thoughts about it because seeing seeing mindless progression for the sake of progression on this yeah. topic seems to be doing harm to a lot of kids. And I think that going forward, you're going to see a lot of these kids coming forward as they are now. You're already seeing it, but it's going to be even worse. And it scares me as a trans person that like we are due for some really strong backlash coming up soon. Like if people think that, you know, trans people have it hard now, wait until there are way more detransitioners than than happy transitioners. Because right now we're in the phase where most people that have a platform and are talking about it come from the age of mostly happy transitioners because you had to go through a lot to get there. But these kids that are being thrown on hormones okay, and yeah. it's it's going to be bad. Yeah, because the lack of gatekeeping means that you're going to have a much bigger pool of negative results because there's no yeah. testing. And people... people and stop me anytime. I'm sorry, but people yeah. act as if gatekeeping is some bad thing. I'm sorry, but a healthy society needs gatekeeping. The reason why pedophiles are not included in the LGBT community is because we gatekeep that out. We don't have a P in LGBT because we gatekeep that because they want to be included. They, they fight for it. They have the map, you know, politically correct term that they've made up for themselves. They want to be in the acronym. They want to have the protections LGBT people have, but we gatekeep. Hmm. Some things you have to gatekeep. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how, like the concept of gender has morphed into this huge thing. It's part of uh, an entire generation's understanding of themselves and the world. And it's become yeah. uh, kind of like a part of their profile with the, the pronouns and then all the various genders, all, all that kind of that theosophy, that, that kind of magical religion. Mm-hmm. It, it, to what degree was that kind of spawned from the separation of sex from gender? How did we not 
keep the genie in the bottle with regards to gender and what that represents and what that means and what what the well I guess the question is what do you think about gender and what do you think about the gender ideology I think that it's completely consumed people's heads I think that it's in large part trendy in the same way that I often relate it back to um if you're old enough you remember the MySpace days and I I'm a MySpace kid I grew up on MySpace and I remember that before it was pronouns in bio, it was very trendy to list all of your phobias. Like I remember in people's about me page, they would list all these crazy phobias that they would clearly just Google online. And that was like people's kind of thing. Um, hmm. Please someone in the comments section, tell me you remember that because I remember that very clearly. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking it was so stupid back then. I'm like, you do not have 20 phobias. Why are you listing phobias for a personality on your page? Um, it's, it's in large part the same thing, but with much more severe consequences. Um, it's affecting the way in which we engage with each other. It's affecting the way in which men and women, um, interact. It's affecting children in the sense that they are, you know, undergoing chemical castration. It's, it's a huge problem. And I long for the days when transgenderism in particular was treated as a medical issue, um, an apolitical issue. And, you know, even if people didn't know a lot about it, people still kind of knew, at least in their peripheral vision of life, that it was out there, that there were men who wanted to become women and women who wanted to become men. And, you know, maybe you didn't understand it, but that's a separate thing. Now it's like a trend and it's, and it's become this toxic war zone. And, caught in the middle are real trans people and innocent kids who are now the football of this like political game in the middle. And it's just, it's, it's sad. It's sad. Could you, could you clarify what you mean by real trans people? Because it's a, there's a linguistic problem there because transition or being trans, that's like a verb. So is there like a, a, right. a constant state or is there a, a solid state? Uh, that people can identify. State. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a constant state. I, I mean, I look at my, myself and the reason I say that, you know, it's a constant state is that just because I transition doesn't mean I'm a woman, I'm a trans woman, you know? Um, so I'm, you know, people can say whatever they want. They can say a woman who's transitioned, a woman in transition. I'm okay. a trans woman. Um, I think that's the easiest phrase. Um, so yeah, I think there's a constant state of being trans. And I think that that, indicate someone who experiences gender dysphoria transitions to alleviate it and whether or not they still have it after transition everyone's story is different i personally believe it doesn't go away a hundred percent but for me transition um alleviated about 98 percent of it okay which is a, a net positive in my mind i mean getting rid of 98 percent of anything if you want to get rid of it, it's pretty good so yeah what do you think about the movement to separate have you been following like the lgb kind of like discontent with the T and especially it seems like the Q is even the, the strangest mm -hmm. bedfellow of the bunch. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, tensions within the uh, community that is symbolized for a month of celebration from corporate media under the banner of pride, that whole community, if it can be thought of as a community? Yeah. I've seen that sentiment out there and um, I definitely understand the position that those people have. You know, I think that 
in particular, the tea has been so heavily politicized and it's, you know, the source of so much tension and discourse that people don't want to be a part of that it's only natural that maybe some people would say, let's just kick the tea off. Um, now, I don't think that individual, everyday trans people are the cause of that tension. I think the politicization of it, the demedicalization of it, um, the uh, the war that's happening isn't really a war fought between everyday trans people. I mean, I know that most people don't know trans people. You know, I think the difference between that and gay people is that, like, everyone knows a gay person. Most people know a lesbian and then... A lot of people know a bisexual person. Not many people know actual trans people because it is extremely rare, um, which you would never know based on the fact that it consumes such a huge chunk of our discourse. But um, at the end of the day, it still is a very, very tiny population. And so the, the downside of most people not knowing trans people is that their depiction and their idea of trans people rests solely on activists, talking heads, and, you know, sort of the clickbait, purple haired, 12 piercing on the face, you know, hate all men sort of caricature. And those are real people. They're not just caricatures. Um, But Hmm. I find, and people may disagree with me, I don't find that they're an accurate representation of everyday trans people. I have people come up, because of being a public figure and because of being Hmm. out there and now being such a known figure in the trans community, I have people that come up to me every single day, whether it's in the grocery store, whether it's in a bar, whether it's... um, I have a pink car, so people will pull up on the side of me now because they recognize me from the car, um, which is a lot. And I'm not a good driver. Do not make me crash. Please don't wave me down in your car. Um, But people come up to me is what I'm trying to say. And a lot of these people are trans. And most of the time, you would never know because most people back in the day, at least, transitioned to blend in, not to stand out. Um, And they hate what's happening. They hate the, the politicization of it. They hate what the community has become. And so... Whenever I get sick of sort of being involved in this discourse and the toxicity online and everything, I just remember those everyday people who transitioned to just get by and don't want to be some, some you know, talking head little war machine. So I try to remember that and remember that there are real people that are affected by this discourse and we have to bring the temperature down and bring it back to a rational place. Mm-hmm. The relationship between the transsexual and the gay and lesbian and bisexual community, sexuality is different than transsexuality. I mean, transsexuality is not the right term, but there's kind of a distinction. There's, there's kind of a difference between fighting for uh, – I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand what makes the pride community a community. I don't understand what unifies it at all anymore. Once a certain number of rights were won, it's now, it it just, it morphed really oddly into this weird um, national month of religiosity or something that it kind of lifted off. There's all these different things, but I don't know where the community stands. Um, I see you, you just posted a, a video of you going in there and seeing seeing what you can draw from a particular sampling. Um, do you think that it, it will eventually just absorb into the culture and won't be special? I mean, the whole pride thing, uh, the whole community like that. Well, yeah, I think historically the T and the L and the G, the G and the B have all been sort of lumped in simply because back in the day, um, there was just less knowledge of the distinction between the two. Um, 
And part of it was gay people not really fully understanding it. They would see trans people, especially before um, medicine got better and trans women could sometimes really look like women, they just saw them as drag queens. And so drag queens are gay, so they kind of all got lumped in. Um, but I agree that there's such a difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, do I support like, removing the T? Not really. I think rather than focusing on removing the T, I think we should have focus on keeping it to just LGBT because I think that's historically what it's always been. And hmm. I think what's really hurting is the the Q and the I and the A and the plus and the two and the, yeah. there is a two the in two. it currently, yeah. by the way. The two. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, what was the question? I'm sorry. It was. Well, what, what do you think about that? The Q creep, the creep of the Q oh. and the appending of that. Did have you seen that? Um, and yeah. You, I don't know how you, became involved in the that community so maybe you you had it in high school or maybe you had to be an adult before you were around people like that so i don't know how long you've been involved in that community but have you watched the cue kind of influence that and what that is and yeah yeah i've I've watched a steady politicization of the t as well um the cue i don't really understand the cue seems to um seems to represent everything. Like, I don't know. And also like I used to get bullied and picked on and called queer as a kid. So I don't relate to like okay. thinking the word queer is powerful. Like I, I remember getting beat up and called a queer when I was like seven. Um, but interestingly, when I transitioned, it was in 2015 when I began and 2014 when I was heavily thinking about it. And, um, it was so different back then too. It was not politicized in this way and it was treated as a medical issue. And now it's the complete opposite and it's done such harm to people and it will continue to do harm to people. Um, and, uh, interestingly, like I did do an interview recently where I was asking people on the street in West Hollywood, um, for pride, like questions about the community. And, um, a lot of them were drunk, so their answers weren't super coherent. But the few rational ones were people saying that they also thought it was ridiculous that there's just new letters added onto the LGBT acronym every single year, that there's new colors and new symbols, and, and it does get to be too much. And, you know, there are studies that show that LGBT acceptance is on the decline for the first time in a long time. And if people think that has nothing to do with the continual changing of the goalposts and the continual um, pursuit of just adding on as many letters and as many colors and identities as you can, then they're sorely mistaken and they're going to continue running this thing into the ground. Yeah. Left field, maybe. What's it like being a public figure or mm. being known by strangers? How, how have you adapted to that? It's interesting, especially um, I'm in LA, so it's an interesting place to um, be the sort of public figure I am because if I, you know, parroted all the left-wing talking points for a living online... I would probably be worshipped everywhere I went here in this city, um, as I see other trans people sometimes are that are sort of my peers, but on the opposite end of the political spectrum. Um, people might think that everywhere I go, I get like people yelling at me or hating me or something, but that's not actually the case. It's mostly people coming up and being like, I love your channel, but don't tell anyone. Yeah. Um, but then when I go to places like Texas, I almost can't go anywhere without someone, you know, saying they appreciate my channel and stuff. I never get I never get people coming up in real life that have anything negative to say. Um, sometimes they'll say, I don't agree with you, but I like you. And that's really the extent of it. Um, 
it's interesting because my address has been doxxed a bunch of times. So I've dealt with, um, you know, some weird people coming to my apartment and, and stuff mm. like that. But, but that's also par for the course, as sick as that sounds. <laughs> I've almost gotten used to just like crazy people. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I'm, I'm very content and happy with the place I hold in the community in this online sphere. Um, you know, I've had a lot of frustrations with it, with it in the past and feelings of like frustration that people don't get me sometimes or that people underestimate me or that people, um, attack me blindly for no reason. And I've had points in my, in along the time that I've kind of felt like almost sorry for myself in a way, but those days are long gone. I don't feel bad for anything I go through. I, I accept any and all hate. I accept any and all love. I don't believe nice comments. I don't believe negative comments. <laughs> I believe the comments from the people who know me in real life. That's my fiance. That's my friends. That's my mother. And um, anyone who gets to know me in real life, because the main thing I hear from anyone who does get to know me in real life is that if people knew you in real life, they would never have anything bad to say about you. So hmm. I like that. <laughs> what What do you conceive of as your work or like your position? What do you, what do you think you're able to do and that you're facilitating in your work? Um, my, uh, my intention is to give a full 360 perspective of the trans issue for one, because you simply don't get it many other places. I mean, and that's on the right and the left on the right, you're going to get, you know, a, just a repeat of the boogeyman stories and the Jessica and Eve stories. And, um, and on the left, you're going to get just the inspirational, my 12 year old cut off his balls and is living the best life. You know what I mean? It's like, so both of those narratives are false. The reality mm. is, it's an issue with a lot of nuance, with a lot of gray area, with people who are successful and unsuccessful in transition. Um, and I try to provide that. Aside from the trans issue, um, I try to just provide a perspective on, you know, social issues that are both honest and funny. I want to make people laugh. That's why mm. I like my last video, because the... Um, a lot of people just said it made them laugh a lot, which is fine because I think yeah. that the world lacks so much laughter. Um, so you, you yeah. don't you don't uh, you don't believe in the negative or the positive comments, but you you tend to trust the laughter. One hundred percent, laughter doesn't lie. Even if you don't want to laugh at something, even if you're like at like a comedy show and the comedian says something that's like not politically correct, and people you know the sort of polite like pearl clutchers, and you see them kind of wanting to laugh and trying to stop themselves that's honest and that's real and that's why i love comedy and that's why i also defend comedy because um you know that's almost gone by the wayside as well uh yeah I, and more than anything i just don't take any of it or myself too seriously i'm just a person living my life online and the same way that like your cousin joe is posting his opinions and stuff on facebook i'm doing the same it just people started following yeah. me i don't know what to say about it like i I feel like I'm just like everyone else, but people for some reason want to hear what I have to say, <laughs> whether that's because they think it's like a freak show or because they think it's like amazing. I don't know. I don't know. The YouTube thing is so, it's just so weird. And I don't know if there's any precedent for it. So I don't know how to conceive of it. Do yeah. you, do you trust it? And do you have plans to like be a commentator or, or make your own uh, TV show or something like that or, or get into the movies maybe even? 
I'll never be cast for a movie. I'm definitely on some Hollywood blacklist. I don't think anyone. <laughs> I don't think anyone thinks that. Um, that's well, the Daily Wire is starting up a studio, so you never know. Right. Maybe they'll cast me in something. I'd love to be in a horror film. So if anyone wants to kill me in a horror film, even if it's because you hate me, cast me for that, please. Um, yeah, I'm such a go with the flow type of person. Yeah. And I didn't start my channel with the intention of doing anything that I do now. Like when I started my channel, I made a video and I thought seven people would watch it. Five of which being like my family members or something. Like I didn't have no expectation. So everything that's ever come of it, whether it's you know, speaking in DC to thousands of people, whether it's doing music videos, whether it's like meeting, you know, people in the industry and getting to talk to them, like everything has been so unexpected and so bigger than I ever thought it would be that like anything that comes in the future, I'm not even counting on it. I'm just going to let it happen. Um, and, but as far as my personal life, I do have like plans though, like personal life. I have a lot of things that I want to accomplish. Hmm. Like uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, oh, you want to climb that or? Uh, no, <laughs> um, I want to be a parent. I don't think that it's um, the natural order of things to ever leave this earth without having left the legacy hmm. of a child. Um, so I'd love to be a parent, um, and I am on my way to doing that. I, I I plan to live a very domestic life in the next few years. I'm kind of giving it until I'm 30 to keep doing what I'm doing. And then after that, I mean, I'll always post videos and I'll always do, you know, what I'm doing to an extent, but after I'm 30, I really want to hone in just having like a family life because, yeah. um, I long for that. Mm -hmm. When you look at the aggregate of all of the content that you've produced, what's something that you, that you look back on and you're particularly proud of, like you, you're like, I, I nailed that one or that thing that I was involved in superseded all expectations. Like, what would you stake your reputation on? Is there anything that you think of? Interesting thing. People maybe don't know about me. I have never watched a video I've ever done back. You ever. don't you never, Not once. Not even once. though like a ranty one. Nope. Huh? Never. You just let it go. Uh, yeah. I, I, I edit the video and then I put it out. And then um, the extent of me ever rewatching anything is if maybe if someone, you know, points out that I had like an editing mistake at like six minutes and 50 seconds or like, mm -hmm. was that a ghost behind you or something? And I'll be like, was it a ghost behind me? And I'll go back and watch it really quick. But I never watch a video in full or something <laughs> you know, like that. Um I think that overall it's not about like a moment in my sort of um, catalog or work that I've done. I think it's more so the overall um, value that I've given to people in terms of um, there's a lot of people who come to me and say that they didn't understand or even hated trans people before coming across my channel. And now they understand that trans people are not simply um, an invention of like far leftism that they're like real people who are getting caught up in far leftism. Um, yeah. Kids who come to me and say that they either found themselves through watching my channel or that they realized they were not trans and they shouldn't transition. That's a big one for me. Parents who are able to um, understand certain issues that maybe they wouldn't have understood or have conversations with their kids that they wouldn't really understand. Um, I met my fiance through my YouTube, so I wouldn't have found the person I love without my YouTube. Like mm -hmm. 
it's it's crazy because as much as I could sit here and focus on all the negative things, as I could focus on like hate videos that have been made on me or like being doxxed or anything negative, like the positive outweighs it so heavily. So I don't regret a single thing I've done. You know, even things that I maybe would have I've had to like apologize for over the years. I don't apologize for my positions, but sometimes I find myself apologizing if I got something wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't regret it because I learned from all of it. Um, yeah. yeah. With regards to the trans issue, what's the most important thing right now or that you think needs advocacy uh, that people need to be paying attention to? I think that you cannot properly advocate for the genuine problems within the community, um, like homelessness, like lack of familial acceptance leading to suicide. And, you know, those things are real, but you can't even get there until you bring down the temperature with the ideological battle that's happening without this blind insistence on lying about biological sex, lying about trans women in sports, lying that 12 year olds who transition are normal and it's happy and it's a fine thing without stopping the lie that it's transphobic to not want to date trans people. You know, just, I'm just listing all the things that frustrate people, right? All the things that turn people off and close people to even caring. You know what I mean? Like you can't be like, please care about these trans people murdered when 99.9% the rest of the time you're being obnoxious assholes about the trans issue. Um, Hmm. I think there needs to be a return to the medicalization of transgenderism. Well, you, you mentioned that that's an interesting thing. I need to tug that apart because the medical industry is rushing it now. So it is medicalized in this odd way. So there's some, so what do you mean by the demedicalization or the remedicalization of that? You don't mean just the affirmative care. Yes. What's, what's amazing is, is you're right. It's while demedicalizing it, there is also this hyper medicalization of it. So you have people who are rejecting the idea that gender dysphoria is any type of pre-qualifier for trans surgery or care okay. while, at the, while at the same time rushing them into care and surgeries and permanent decisions. It's such a twisted like example of just cognitive dissonance in the worst way and political political correctness being involved in the medical field in the worst way right it's not like um it's not like we're politicizing i don't know botox or something minor you know what i mean it's it's politicizing permanent at times decisions and a lot of the times for minors and um when I say that we need to return to a medical um, view of transgenderism, it's that. It's gender dysphoria. It's therapy before surgery. It's recognizing that maybe there are ways to cure gender dysphoria that don't involve surgery and transition. And that's something that the trans community will never talk about. And that's something I get a lot of heat for even mentioning. But I don't think transition is right for everyone. Um, and... I think that there's a narrative that it is that if you have gender dis- gender yeah. non-conforming attributes to any extent that you suddenly need to castrate okay. yourself and it's just not so. Gender non-conformity is different than gender dysphoria. But right. gender dysphoria it's it's still 
I don't think it's the same for everybody. It's always yeah. from my, I'm, I'm not, I don't have it, but I've it, talked with a lot of people. Could you explain how transition put it into a 2% problem? Like, yeah. There's, well, there's, there's, um, very, there's varying levels of dysphoria too. It's about recognizing that there are people who experience dysphoria sometimes as a child and then it goes away. There are, um, adults who experience it, but to a degree that it's manageable and they don't have to make any drastic, you know, decisions about it. For me, it impeded every moment of my life. It was a burden every moment of my life. There wasn't really a moment where it was not on my mind. There wasn't really a situation in which it didn't negatively affect me. Um, so you would interact with the world and there would be a barrier between your expectations yeah. or the world's expectations, or there was like an extra layer of uh, yeah. resistance to everything, the way you moved. And was that located inside of you and outside of you or primarily one or the other? It was both. Um, so I think that sometimes when you're not trans and don't have that experience of growing up as a boy and then transitioning and being perceived as a woman, um, you don't understand how much of the world really is gendered, like how much of our interactions as humans are the result of, you know, evolutionary biology that dictate male and female behaviors. And when you can't meet those expectations of your evolutionary role of being a male, it's very, very frustrating. Um, I knew that there was no way I could ever be a father and a husband to a woman. I, there's just no way I could ever do it. Um, and I don't think anyone who watches me or knows me would ever think that that would be part of my life. And then you think, okay, well, there's, well, maybe you were meant to be a gay man. And it's like, no, there's no way I could ever be attracted to a gay man. There's no way a gay man would ever be attracted to me. Um, even before I transitioned, that wasn't me. And it was never about my orientation because before I knew that I liked men, I knew that I didn't want to be a man. It was completely separate. Weird. Um, I mean, odd. I don't mean that disparagingly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, so yeah. the, and, and I try to tuck this apart, especially with the detransitioners, um, because they're coming to the game. There's that rapid onset gender dysphoria where they, they pick up these ideas socially in their teen yeah. years before they even have a sexuality. Um, and they're still trying to figure out themselves. Male uh, sexual development's a little bit different <laughs> than that. It kind of springs upon you. But you're saying before your sexuality developed, there was this persistent understanding of yourself as is. How do you, how do you even say that? Because I know yeah. uh, in the wrong body isn't the right thing or yeah it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a corny phrase because even now i think i always had the right body i just think i was meant to be who i am now um but but yeah i mean i was in preschool feeling like i didn't want to be a boy and i don't think people have a sexuality in preschool so you know if i had a sexuality at 12 or 13 when just when puberty started um then that's when that happened but before that you know i was in preschool automatically already recognizing that the expectations I had as a little boy, I just couldn't adequately meet. And it actually brought me distress to have to try to meet them. Um, So they they mattered to you. You didn't just ignore them. There was something about it that was bringing light to a deeper discomfort on the inside. Yeah, Yeah. it it was, it was everything. It was um, being in preschool and, 
realizing that I was supposed to go play with the boys and not the girls. It was, you know, feeling weird when people would call me he and him, even in preschool, but not knowing why and being Mm -hmm. like, well, that's weird. I mean, I know that, you know, I'm a little boy, but why are people, why am I feeling weird? Are people acknowledging that? Um, And just, just always sort of feeling like there was something else for me and that the way people were seeing me wasn't really correct. Not that I was viewing myself in the correct way at that age because no one knows themselves yet. Um, that took many years to sort of come to fruition, but, but yeah, that's how I know that it's completely separate from sexuality. It's like, you don't have a sexuality at five or four. So would you go back in time and avoid puberty if you could? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, no, I mean, if, if you mean when I go back in time and like have different circumstances in which my parents let me transition at like 12. No, I, I don't think anyone's ready for that at 12. Okay. Um, so, I think so puberty was a necessary part of your development. I mean, I think everything was like, it's, it's a, mm. it's sort of a question like, would you go back and be like a completely different version of yourself or a different person? I mean, I, I like who I am. I love who I am. I enjoy my life. So, you know, it's kind of a, strange philosophical philosophical question like it's like would you be someone else or a different version like no i I enjoy my life i i ask because there's a strong push in the advocacy groups that want to um who who consider puberty uh, there's such a thing as a false puberty and you could avoid puberty by puberty blockers and then hrt eventually so you wouldn't you wouldn't do that for yourself and you advocate against that yourself. You think that puberty is a male puberty for a trans person is essential for their development. I don't know about essential for development. All I know is that I was not meant to be a woman. I was meant to be a trans woman. I was meant to be Blair white. I was meant to be any and everything that I am now. Um, and I know that it's very harmful to allow a 12 year old or a 13 year old to decide upon whether or not they want to have kids in the future or whether or not they want to, you know, have breasts and not be able to procreate. Um, I think all of that's extremely harmful. I think that two things can be true at once. I know trans people that transitioned as very young children and they're happy and successful and happy. And I also know that my emails are full of people who transitioned as children and are miserable and suicidal. So um, I think it's one of those issues that we have to, very clearly define and diagnose these situations medically, but that's also why it's so terrible that they're taking gender dysphoria out of the equation. How, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you confidently say this 12 year old is going to live a happy adult life? If we chemically castrate him right now, if you can't even diagnose anything or you can't even do a brain scan, how, mm-hmm. I mean, and I don't think you have to be a doctor to, know that that's harmful <laughs> yeah it's it's just such a fraught situation right. and yeah what trust do you think yeah how do you how do you everything but that right yeah right yeah what what's like the generalized advice for detransitioners or what's some things that what, what's a pattern of uh distress that you see that people could understand about that community uh to help them or that that community uh you think uh requires or some sort of support or some sort of understanding of, of their situation now that, that you think is key or that you try to provide them? I, I try to provide <clears throat> as much 
understanding, acceptance, and love as I could possibly give them. Because from the perspective of someone who transitioned and is very happy with the end results and who I am now in the life I'm living, I can only imagine, I can't imagine how awful and how much of an existential crisis it must be to realize that you have removed your breasts or you have permanently altered your voice or you have castrated yourself and it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. That has got to just be one of the worst things. That has got to be, you know, you see stories of people getting like, botched in plastic surgery not even for trans reasons just for like beauty reasons like oh she messed up her nose or something that's got to be like nothing in comparison to like removing your penis or removing your breasts you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and so i try to i try to be as open as i can to understanding and i think that in terms of prevention which i think is the most important thing that no one talks about if you want to prevent you know people from going down this path if it's the wrong path for them there are some there are some telltale markers that I have noticed. And this is from the videos I viewed online from people I don't know. And this is from the stories I get in my emails to the tune of thousands. I'm talking like there's probably almost no one else on the planet but me who has a higher concentration of like detransitioner emails and stories that they've given me because there's just not any other trans people Mm-hmm. willing to hear them out and these people really reach out to me um hmm. so it is overwhelmingly female detransitioners are overwhelmingly biologically female why that is we could get into that um mm-hmm. but that is a marker um and people can get mad about that i don't care it's 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 clear as day to me there are obviously biologically male detransitioners as well but i would say it's like 80 percent female Go look up I'm detransitioning those keywords on YouTube and all the videos that come up are going to be from females. Um, Autism seems to be something that is present in a lot of these kids. Uh, Misdiagnosed mental health issues. Um, Depression, anxiety. Depression, anxiety, social awkwardness, um, lack of community in real life. Hmm. and too much community online, too many people online getting in your business, too many people online trying to diagnose you. Um, And these trans circles can be very toxic um, online. I think everyone can kind of see that from the outside looking in. Well, guess what? It's 20 times worse inside. Hmm. (laughs) Were you you, uh, ever in that before you got out of it? (laughs) I mean, not that you're out Uh, of it, but... um... To an extent, I was never in sort of like the hyper liberal trans spaces, but I've been involved in like private trans groups on Facebook and um, different websites over the years. And I've only ever lasted a couple months being members of those places because they just get so toxic. It's very yeah. ideologically driven. Um, and I could, but, but I could see how young people who are lacking community in real life, lacking emotional support in real life, turn to these groups because these groups present themselves as the cure. They present themselves as the pathway to finding your true self, to fixing your mental health problems, to being the best version of yourself. And those are all very attractive um you know, things that everyone pursues in some way, take the trans out of the equation. Everyone wants to be the best version of who they are. Everyone wants to fix their demons and, and find their way out of the things that haunt them. 
but it just so happens that if you're not able to clearly identify the demon, which is gender dysphoria, and I believe I clearly identified it, you might be making a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. And it just becomes so cultish. You know, transition is not a fix-all. It's a fix-one. It's mm-hmm. a fix-one. It only helped regenerative dysphoria, and only mostly, not entirely. Like, mm-hmm. it didn't make me rich. It didn't fix my unhealthy interactions with men. It didn't fix my relationships with my family. It didn't make me smarter. Um, I guess it did make me prettier. Uh, but... <laughs> It didn't, it didn't fix anything in my life I was struggling with other than that one thing. And that's, I think, a big problem with these young girls who get caught up in it is they're going through maybe being victims of molestation, maybe not having friends, maybe being depressed. And they think it's going to fix it. And it's not. It's hmm. not. Hmm. What's a, this is kind of a broader question, but what makes you, what qualities make you not susceptible or immune to getting swept up in a community like that? Because those communities are all over the place about all these things. And that's where we began with wokeness is this ideological community that enforces conformity. There's certain, I still don't know what it is, but there's certain things, but what makes you resilient from being absorbed in, into groups like that? And what, and maybe we can extrapolate that into something that people need to have more of in order for these groups to not hold so much sway. Yeah. I think that I've just never been a conformist. Um, I've always been very anti-conformity since I was very, very young. Um, And ironically, I think that having those very early feelings of dysphoria and recognizing that I was so different from my peers really shaped that. Like, I grew up in an area where you know, I was in first grade and people were be were coming up to me asking me why I was gay or why I was a sissy or why I was the way I was. Like from a very early age, I recognized I was very different than everyone around me and that they recognized it and that I recognized it. Um, and I just knew inherently I wanted to be nothing like them. I didn't, I didn't want to be like them in their small world and I wanted to mm-hmm. find something more. But I knew that it was about finding it for myself. I didn't need to latch on to any particular group to find that. Like... And specifically, transitioning and being trans, like, it entails decisions that are for you. If you're ever making a decision because other people are making it, it's probably the wrong decision. Your life is your life alone and your story and your journey is your journey alone. So if you're suddenly feeling like you want to transition because you're involved in this friend group and they're all identifying as non-binary or transitioning or going on hormones, it's probably not the right decision for you. Like, I transitioned... I transitioned in a way that was um, at odds with everyone and everything around me. My parents Mm. didn't understand it. My friend group didn't understand it. My, no one did. And that's how I knew it was right for me because I wasn't making, (laughs) I wasn't making the decision to appease anyone to be, to fit in. If you're making a decision to be trans, to fit in, just, just stop where you are. Like, I don't know, Hmm. take up, take up, take up some kind of club sports. I don't know, but no, (laughs) that's, that's interesting. So the uh, widespread push for so-called trans acceptance, which is kind of going overboard into trans conformity, or you will lose out on society in general. You appreciated the resistance that you were, that you had in society and you embraced that in some form of being an outsider and you made peace with that. 
right early on I, or you incorporated that into who you were right i i i um I, I don't support being a rebel for the sake of being a rebel or being a contrarian for the sake of being a contrarian. But I guess I just inherently knew growing up that all the kids who messed with me and all the parents who supported their kids messing with me and all the people who didn't understand me, it was for a reason um, that just because they didn't understand what I was going through, or understand why I moved through the world in the way in which I did, mm-hmm. didn't mean that I was wrong. It just meant I needed to go figure this out in a way that, you know, was independent of their negativity and their thoughts. Whereas now I see people that are transitioning because they want to be a part of a group. And that just seems so backwards to me because guess who's going to be there when you're 95 and laying in a casket? Like just you. Guess who's going to be there when you're of old age? It's just you. And that's why whenever kids message me now and they ask, like, how do I know if I'm trans? I say... One of the the key things I say is like, picture yourself very old, because one of the ways in which I knew I needed to transition was I could not picture myself as an old man. (laughs) I I just could not do it. I knew it was never going to be me. Whereas these kids now, I feel like they're so so short sighted and they Mm. only see the world they're in. And I guess I always saw the world beyond, if that makes sense. You you identified as a golden girl uh, or you could see yourself uh, being a Blair White (laughs) Right. I who's, saw no, not Blair White. Who's the who's the comedian or the the woman? Debbie, Betty, Betty White. Yeah. Yeah. I was a Betty White. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I saw myself as like a bitchy old lady who like wears <laughs> fur coats and smokes cigarettes and is super bitter towards the world. I did not see myself as an old man in a rocking chair. Um. So yeah, that's just a funny way of putting it, but it actually I think is very important. Like, it's a permanent decision. And people don't treat it as that. And that's a problem. What, um, being an outsider, if you felt like an outsider, and that's the story that you presented to me in this brief discussion, Yeah. where did you find solace in reading and hiking? Uh, like, was there a writer or a philosopher or some, some place where you found somebody to speak to or commune with that wasn't in your immediate... People are going to think I'm saying this just for the sake of making people mad, but I loved J.K. Rowling books. I loved Harry Potter. Harry Potter was everything to me. I'm not saying it just because she's whatever, okay? I'm, I'm really I, – I fell in love with the Harry Potter series because it was very representative of um, me as a child. It was like a young kid who huh. was around people who didn't understand him, who just wanted to escape, who wasn't understood, and that was me. Um, and so that was an attractive story for me. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I, I I took solace in, like, studies. I was a good student um, reading. I used to write a lot, which transfers into what I do now. I write a lot. I write for the Post Millennial. I write my videos out. Um, hmm. Yeah, I guess I, I, I looked within to find myself. I didn't look to some ideology. I didn't know there was a trans ideology. I looked – I didn't look to – a political group. I didn't look to friends or online groups. I just was like, I got to figure this out for myself. And it seems like no one does that anymore. Everyone's so comfortable being part of a collective. It's hard when we have the collective in our hand and it's so addictive, like right there, stimulus, 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 stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. That might be the difference is that when I was 11 years old, I didn't have, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, People telling me what to be and what to think and who to, you know, I didn't have that algorithmic, like, push. Um, I just had to find it in here. 
that it, I don't want to call you a contrarian, but um, there might be a case, and this is what I tried to provide too, uh, some, some resistance to any sort of herd behavior. I guess that's contrarianism, just posing some friction just to get people to slow down a little bit. And sometimes you have to be brash to do that. Sometimes you have to be ostentatious and get their attention to do that. But one way of – it's like we're all in a wave pool and things – people get synced up and then they just go over the cliff. And we need people that are kind of pushing against things just to to test them and, and upset people enough to get them to think. I think that that's a role um, – it's kind of the the jester role in a way yeah. so comedy is in there and uh i can see how uh you have that knack in a way and how that's beneficial uh to getting people to think uh through yeah. that and it's never for the sake of i find contrarians for the sake of being a contrarian so obnoxious it's it's never for that it's just that I've, I've always been against groupthink and herdthink and collectivism. I've never saw the value in it. Um, hmm. And so that's why people, I think, have such a hard time understanding that as a trans person, why I'm not a leftist or why I'm not just parroting all these talking points that the rest of them are. And um, it's interesting because I see people like questioning like, that there must be some huge benefit for me in doing it, that I must be being paid by someone or it must be like, it's like, no, like I, 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 my life would probably be even better if I was parroting all the talking points the rest of trans people are. I would probably be, have even more money and more success and more, you know what I mean? I, I would be cast in that Hollywood film probably. I have no doubt about it. I think I would. I mean, hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's not for the sake, it's just about being honest. Like I, mm -hmm. yeah. Any uh, big projects that you're willing to speak about coming up that people can get, look forward to? Mm, I, have a couple appearances. Things I, I have a couple things I can't talk about. Good. But I am looking forward to setting up a tour again now that, um, oh. now that not, um, Corona's over, but now that people are seeming to calm down about it a little bit. Um, so going to go back on tour, which I'm so excited about because, um, before 2020, it was such a big part of what I did was speaking, you know, to people in person and doing, you know, events. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, and just more videos and yeah, maybe more rap videos. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> what, what's, what, what are these tours like? Are, are they, uh, talks or panels or? <clears throat> yeah, it's, um, it's me and it's, you know, I have friends across the country that either do YouTube or commentary or whatever. And sometimes I'll bring them out. Um, hmm. and it's Q and a, it's meeting people. I, th I find that that's the main thing people want when I go and do in-person events is like, they don't necessarily want me up there doing some boring monologue for 20 minutes. They want to like ask hmm. me questions and, and hug me and take pictures and do all that. So I like doing that. And it was very sad all of 2020 not getting able to do that. It was yeah. kind of depressing because I find that it's sort of like the, how do I put it? It makes online discourse feel a little less toxic when you can meet people in real life and like see that people are normal people and not just names behind screens telling you to kill yourself. It's like, oh, there's mm -hmm. actually normal real people in real life that are nice. Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. I don't know how to wrap it up. So, oh, uh, I can't do a wrap on the fly. I can do it in premeditated. Um, okay. But uh, do you have any, uh, 
What's a what's a strange uh, hobby that you picked up during uh, lockdown? Did you did you branch out and find that you're into gluing things or hot gun glue or something? Fitness. Fitness. Yeah, fitness became, and it still is like such a big part of my world now. I go to the gym every day. I work out every day. Um, What kind of is there a like a like a karate or a CrossFit thing or like something that you? No, just a lot of cardio, some weights. Um, I I like to hike with my dog almost every day. Um, I found that as the world became increasingly out of my control, I had a tour that was canceled because of the pandemic. I had, you know, intense lockdowns here in LA. It wasn't like Texas and Florida. It was like, they're telling you if you leave your house, Mm -hmm. you'll get arrested. Um, The world got so much less out of my control that like, I can control this, right? So I started working out a lot, being into health. So I'm trying to keep that going now that um, things are more open and I can go to bars again and get fat mm-hmm. and drink. So yeah, maybe maybe your tour could be a walking tour. You can Forrest Gump across the country. Right. Maybe I'll just like walk to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Blair. It was great to catch back up with you. Yes, it was good. It was good. Let me know when it comes out, and I'll be posting it. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.